Hello from Ellensburg, Washington, USA. This is the Nick Zentner Geology Podcast, Episode 25, Exotic Terrains. Thanks for listening. Exotic? Hmm. I'm listening. I'm all ears, you say. Exotic terrains? Terrains, spelled T-E-R-R-A-N-E-S. That's usually the first comment people have. I think you misspelled terrains. No, I didn't. Nope. This is a a specific geologic term, a terrain. And we're going to explore that concept today and its role with not only Washington, but much of the American West stretching from Alaska down to Mexico. It's an exotic terrain story. And we touched on this concept just briefly in the last episode. We were talking about the Olympic Peninsula, and we mentioned uh, a terrain and accretion and a few other buzzwords. Um, And we're going to explore that much more completely here today. Uh, But to start, I think I'd like to visit the Rocky Mountains with you. You know what? No, I'm not. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with uh, a mountain called Mount Stewart, just north of Ellensburg, Washington. And then we'll go to the Rockies. How about that? Okay, so Mount Stewart is a landmark here in central Washington. For those listening within earshot of this campus, you all know Mount Stewart. It's that absolutely majestic uh, mountain range that is on the northern skyline from our valley called the Kittitas Valley. For those that are not familiar, you might Google uh, Stewart Range, Washington, and see that Mount Stewart is the high point, but it's a whole uh, series of peaks. And um, if you get on the north side of the Stewart uh, profile, uh, you're in the Alpine Lakes Wilderness, a very popular place to do backcountry trips. And there's a permitting system, and you've got a do the lottery thing to get in there and camp a little bit. They, they limit the number of people in there on a summer day, for instance. Um, but if you've got young legs like uh, our kids, uh, you, you take friends up there and you, you, you hike in, and you do the whole loop 20 miles uh, in one day. Up Colchuck and up uh, Asgard Pass and uh, through the enchantments and out uh, Snow Lake, I think it is. But regardless, uh, it's a very popular place, and it's a good starting point for this discussion of exotic terrains, because if we really look at the rock of Mount Stewart, or the whole Stewart Range, we suddenly realize we have granite. No big deal. We had granite in the eastern Sierra of of California, for instance, or we had granite in other big places uh, in this course so far. But in the case of central Washington, we have 93 million-year-old granite making up the Stewart Range. And, uh, you know, wildflower-wise or plant-wise or climbing-wise, the Stewarts are part of the Cascades. But geology-wise, the Stewart Range has nothing to do with the Cascades because that rock is too old. If you recall... The Cascades go back 40 million years. We had 40 million years worth of uh, volcanic activity in what we now know as the Cascades. And the Cascades are still active. Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980. Blah, 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 blah. But we go back 40, 4-0, 40 million years for the Cascades. And yet, here's this major mountain range just to the east of 
many of the Cascade Peaks. And the stuff's 93 million years old. It's twice as old as the oldest rocks in the Cascades. This cannot be a Cascade story, and indeed it is not. There's something else going on. Okay, 93-million-year-old granite in the Stewarts, fine. If we drop down off of the Stewart Range and start hiking towards Ellensburg, uh, there's a major drainage uh, just to the south of the Stewart Range, and that's called Ingalls Creek. And then if we're up at Ingalls Lake and some of the other places like Earl Peak or Ingalls Pass or uh, um, Long's Pass, etc., uh, in other words, we're in, the, we're in, the, we're in the, the, the foothills of the Stuarts, but on the, on the south side. Uh, we're out of the 93-million-year-old granite, but we're suddenly into rock that's even older. It's 150-million-year-old serpentinite, part of something called the Ingalls Tectonic Complex. And the serpentinite is a waxy, green, cool-looking rock that's real slippery. That's why it's called serpentinite, like a serpent skin. But there's so much iron in that serpentinite that it weathers to this bizarre deep orange, this bright orange. So you got this orange slash green serpentinite that's 150 million years old. Well, that can't be from the, the Cascades either because that's even older than the, the, the Stewart Range that's a 93-million-year-old granite. Uh, if you want to, we can hop over nearby to uh, the the hills just north of Wenatchee. And suddenly we realize that's a metamorphic rock called Nice, which has um, different generations of stuff within it, but is also back in the age of the dinosaurs, essentially. It's Mesozoic rock. So here's the first major point. If you are just north of Ellensburg, Washington, you have very old bedrock units. And the old bedrock units are juxtaposed immediately next to each other. 150 million-year-old serpentinite right next door to 93 million-year-old granite right next to, let's pick a number, 100 million-year-old biotite gneiss. What's going on? Why are those rocks there? It's not just a couple rocks. Why is the bedrock of central Washington so old and so dissimilar from one block to the next? For many years, it was just a question mark. The early geologists in the early part of the 20th century would just map those units, put a bunch of question marks in their notes, and move on. And it really wasn't until the 1970s and the 1980s that we started to get a handle on those bedrock units. Now, I'm not just talking about central Washington, am I? I'm talking about pretty much all the rocks of the North Cascades in Washington. I'm pretty much talking about all of the rock in British Columbia, like all of the bedrock of the Northern Cascades going into the Canadian Rockies. I'm talking about old rocks from Alaska to Mexico. What is up? Okay, that's the hook for this episode. Let's switch gears slightly. Let's go to the Rocky Mountains, which is further to the east now, right? You know where the Rockies are. You can think of the Continental Divide of North America. Famously, it's in Glacier National Park. That's the Garden Wall and going to to the Sun Highway. 
But if we follow that continental divide, we're going to get ourselves down through the Beaverhead Mountains in Montana. We're going to get into Yellowstone Park. Uh, uh, bad example. Forgot it. Forget I said that. We're going to get into the mountains of, of, of Wyoming and of Colorado. Okay. And uh, let's just make some basic uh, observations in the Rockies. Uh, has it dawned on you so far in these episodes, we haven't talked about the Rockies much, and yet it's our biggest mountain range? It's the dominant mountain range of North America. We've just kind of avoided it. Why? Well, there's kind of a sneaky story with the Rockies, and it involves this concept uh, for today's episode. So let's make some quick field notes from the Rocky Mountains and see if we can come up with a plate tectonic explanation for the Rockies. Ready? Get set? Go. Okay, the Rockies have a lot of sedimentary rock layers. The Rockies have a lot of metamorphic units that are uh, in the cores of many of those mountain ranges, especially in Wyoming and Colorado. Big uplift units, and there's kind of a core of metamorphic Precambrian rock, and then there's kind of this uh, folded sedimentary material on opposite sides. Okay. There's exceptions, but for the most part, the Rocky Mountains are not a volcanic scene. It's not a bunch of cascade-like cones or a Sierra Nevada-like big batholith. It's not a major igneous province, the Rocky Mountains. Okay, let's learn a little bit more from the Rockies. There are folds, broad anticlines and synclines. There are plenty of faults, mostly reverse faults and thrust faults. In other words, faults from compression, and the folds are from crustal compression. And we have ages on those faults and folds. Most of them were active between 90 and 30 million years ago. We call it the Laramide orogeny. And orogeny, that sounds dirty, doesn't it? Oh, you've hit my erogenous zone. No, this is orogeny, meaning mountain building. There was a mountain building project to build the Rockies between 90 and 30 million years ago. By the way, have you ever thought of our big earthquake risks in, in uh, North America? It's not really in the Rockies, is it? There aren't huge earthquake risks in Montana or Colorado. That's weird. It's our biggest mountain range. Himalayas, there's huge earthquakes. Why aren't there big earthquakes in the Rockies? Stay tuned. Hang on. So, folded sedimentary rocks, metamorphic rocks, not many, meta, uh, not many volcanic rocks, lots of folds and faults that talk about a compression story between 90 and 30 million years ago. Does this sound like some sort of a plate boundary scenario? You might have to go back to our plate boundary, if you're really into this, you might want to go back to our plate boundary uh, episode and talk about kinds of rocks that are associated with different kinds of plate boundaries. But I'll cut to the chase. The Rockies, the Rocky Mountains, scream plate boundary, and they scream a very particular plate boundary, convergent, continent versus continent, right? The Rockies are telling us that they formed at a convergent continent versus continent collision. Why? Those things we just mentioned. Lack of volcanic activity, folded sedimentary rocks, metamorphic rock at the core, and a lot of faults and folds. So between 90 and 30 million years ago, that was a major plate boundary. But the Rockies are dead. 
The Ro- somebody killed the Rockies. The Rockies have not been uplifting or producing earthquakes or producing more folds in the last 30 million years. Now, hold on just a second. Now, let's catch our breath. I thought we were talking about exotic terrains, and now we're talking about the Rocky Mountains. What is the connection? Why is this discussion of the Rockies happening now? Here we go. If the Rocky Mountains are truly a convergent continent-versus-continent collision, what are the two continents that collided? First message, North America used to be smaller, and roughly the Rocky Mountains are located where we used to have an old coastline, especially in the northern Rockies. So who were the two continents that collided? Well, this is now students in class brainstorming. You know, we're late in the class and everybody's super into it, or I shouldn't say that. A few are super into it, and we're just kind of rolling with their enthusiasm. It's fun. And everybody can see that the geology to the east of the Rockies is the old North American block. So that's one continent. And then quite often, students in class then say, well, I guess that means, and they kind of have this light bulb moment, and they go, uh, oh, so like everything west of the Rockies is the other continent. That must be it. That we have evidence at the Rockies' crest, or in the Rocky Mountains themselves, evidence of a continent versus continent collision long ago, And can't you just take stuff west of the Rockies and stuff east of the Rockies and say those are the two continents that collided? Like everything west of the Rockies is the continent, quote-unquote, that was out in the water somewhere, and it came in and it docked and it made the Rockies? And people get pretty excited at that point. Like, I I, I figured it out. That's good. And I'm very encouraging and nurturing, uh, on the surface at least. And I say, great job. However, if we look carefully at all that rock west of the Rockies, it looks weird. And we look at a map in our little course pack of all of the bedrock in the real estate to the west of the Rocky Mountains. The west of the Rocky Mountains, which is what? Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, Idaho, Oregon, California, Nevada, a little bit of Arizona, down into Mexico. Let's look carefully at that real estate. What do we find? If we go back old enough, if we go back prior to 90 million years ago, what does that rock look like? It looks like a quilt. Big moment of today. Are you here? Are you with me? It looks like a quilt a geologic map of everything west of the Rockies in North America looks like a frickin' quilt. What do I mean? Well, your grandma sewed a big, beautiful quilt for you and took all the fragments of your favorite fabrics as a young person and stitched that quilt together by hand with love. And it's your wedding or it's your graduation or whatever, and here comes this quilt. And every patch of fabric in the quilt is a different kind of fabric. Different age, different material. It's all stitched together now. 
And those three things we just described in central Washington are three patches in the quilt. The 93-million-year-old granite of the Stewart Range, the 150-million-year-old serpentinite, which forms in the deep oceans, by the way, originally, and then that biotite gneiss north of Wenatchee. I'm coy about the age because I'm still confused about the age of that Swakane biotite gneiss, so sue me. Let's not lose the major uh, point of the story, though. Here it is. Are the Rockies reminiscent of a continent versus continent collision? Yes, they are. But it was old North America acting as one continent and all of these terrains west of the Rockies as the other continent. All these terrains together. And here's the biggest point of this episode. Those terrains came in from the ocean. Each patch in the quilt, each exotic terrain or accreted terrain, each piece of land came from the ocean. And they came in one at a time. So that's the tweak on this idea that two continents collided to make the Rocky Mountains. It's not like all those terrains got together out in the water somewhere, made a quilt or a raft, that's another analogy now, and we docked the raft. Instead, we accumulate these scraps of land. That's what the terrain is, exotic terrain. Let's break it down right now. Terrain, T-E-R-R-A-N-E, that's a piece of land that was made elsewhere, that's the exotic part, and then added to the edge of North America. Accretion means to add. Take a big mouthful of Bazooka Joe bubblegum. You lose the flavor. You eventually get tired of chewing on that monster piece of gum. You're in a classroom. I'm going to take the big Bazooka Joe out of my mouth. It's full of saliva and everything else. It's lost its kick, and I'm going to, I'm going to add it on to the bottom of the desk. I'm not saying I've ever done that. But that was one of my jobs when my dad was a high school teacher. I had to go and peel off all the wadded up pieces of bubble gum underneath each desk. Good times. The point is those wads of gum were accreted to the bottom of the desk. Accreted, added onto. So let's finish the narrative. Why did the Rockies grow? There's actually quite a set of complicated ideas I'm glossing over, but the basic idea is you accumulate or accrete each of those terrains onto the western edge of North America until there's enough of those created terrains to act as the other continent in this continent versus continent collision. Huh. So that quilt is made out of all these scraps of material that have no connection with each other. You can have a terrain of serpentinite right next to a terrain of granite, right next to a terrain of gneiss, right next to a terrain of limestone, right next to a terrain of basalt, right next to a terrain of rhyolite, right next to a terrain of schist, etc., etc., etc. And the present configuration of the terrains make no sense at all. They were not made next door to each other, and yet they're sitting next door to each other today, typically bonded by faults. And so you can see why this is a headache. 
why it's exciting but also a headache to try to figure out the history of these terrains. If you look at a geologic map of British Columbia or Alaska or northern Washington with the North Cascades area, that's really what we're talking about. It's an amazing accumulation of scraps of land. And in the 1960s, when plate tectonics became um, clear to everyone, the leading ideas emerged that you can move these terrains out of the ocean and get them added onto a continent if you have an ocean plate act as a conveyor belt. If you can get these scraps of land onto an ocean plate, like the Farallon Plate, remember our friend from a few episodes back? The Farallon Plate is a big part of this story. We had such a long history of the Farallon Plate coming at North America and subducting beneath North America. And the perk of that is that any scraps of land that happened to be on the Farallon Plate were heading towards us. And those pieces of land, just like Silesia late in, yes, in last episode, just like Silesia, we're going to take that island, we're going to lift it off of the downgoing oceanic plate, we're going to smack it on, Bazooka Joe style, onto the other plate. Now, there's some fairer questions here that are difficult to answer. You say this. Well, I get why you would have a big uh, basaltic island on an ocean plate uh, because that's how big shield volcanoes form. They found, form in the ocean. This is from a few episodes ago. Hot spot or whatever. But how are you going to get a big piece of ocean floor to get moved and added onto another continent? Or how are you going to take a, a big uh, piece of metamorphic gneiss? How are you going to get that onto an oceanic plate to begin with? It's hard to answer, but I can uh, give you a couple of examples. Can you picture Baja, California? We're down in Mexico now. You can picture that, right? And there's the Gulf of California that separates Baja, California, with mainland Mexico. It hasn't always been that way. The San Andreas Fault system has shown up in the last 10 million years and has basically pried off the bedrock of Baja, California, with the rest of mainland Mexico. That's a recent geologic phenomenon. Well, what is Baja, California today? It's a future terrain. It's a future exotic terrain. That's a piece of North America's bedrock that has been removed from North America. And this continues into Southern California, by the way. And if we look to the future, it sure as hell looks like that sliver of Baja California and San Diego and Hollywood are going to be moved with the rest of the Oceanic Pacific Plate out to sea. Two inches a year. <laughs> But if we come back 50, 60, 70 million years from now, we will find Baja California in the middle of the Pacific. That's not basalt. That's granites and other parts of North America's continental makeup that now happens to be out in the middle of the ocean. That's the kind of thing we visualize for 
uh, creating some of these exotic terrains that are made out of rocks that are not typical in an oceanic setting. Hey, this is a hard one. I'm half into this, more than half into this episode, and um, I don't know how you're doing with this one. It's tough to visualize these things. Uh, let's continue, though. So this really is a giant gift exchange between continents. If you're willing to go back hundreds of millions of years, I'm not kidding now, hundreds of millions of years, and you look at supercontinent assembly and breakup, kind of a secondary drama with that are these continents that are giving pieces of land, terrains, to the oceans, and those ocean plates are carrying those scraps of land to another continent and then accreting them onto another continent. And then other continents at other times are giving some of their scraps of continent and sending them somewhere else. So if you look at it with a new set of eyes, each continent basically has a craton, which is the interior portion of the continent that's old and pretty stable. But then on the margins of these continents, there are these scraps of land that have been given and taken over the years. And North America definitely has that. There are exotic terrains on the east coast of North America that uh, predate the Appalachians or are part of the Appalachian story in the mountain building there. And I've just described the uh, younger accreted terrains uh, on the west coast of North America. So this is one of those that excites people, and also there's so many new concepts that it's, it's tough to kind of uh, make sure that we feel comfortable with this. And I can't promise that we'll feel super tidy and comfortable at the end of this one, but I've got a couple final things to say about this, this idea. In the case of North America, our major gift receiving, in other words, our major exotic terrains being added to the western coast of North America happened in the last 200 million years. And it's no accident that the Farallon Plate was subducting beneath the west coast of North America for much of that time. Here's the way, a different way to say it. As long as the Farallon plate was coming at us and subducting beneath us, it was bringing terrains with it. And we can therefore reconstruct where and when the Farallon plate existed based on these terrains that were added to us. And the main point about the Rockies dying is that the Farallon is no longer offshore and the terrains are no longer coming. The youngest of the terrains to add to North America was Silesia, added to the Pacific Northwest 50 million years ago. We really haven't received more material in the last 50 million years. And as I just described, we're now in the process of giving pieces of land away. Baja California is the most uh, current example of that. Let's finish with this concept and then we'll set up what we're doing in the next episode. The next episode, we're going to go back to Washington and be very specific about the development of Washington. We're going to basically assemble Washington in the next episode. But for right now, I need to fess up. 
Early in this series of episodes, I talked about the craton in the platform of North America. Do you happen to remember that? The platform, we said, were a series of sedimentary layers that stretched from coast to coast across the interior of North America. And below the platform is the metamorphic craton, the Precambrian rock. Do you recall this? Most famously exposed in the Grand Canyon. At the very bottom of the Grand Canyon is metamorphic Precambrian craton. And in the more famous walls of the Grand Canyon that you hike down through, those are alternating sedimentary layers making up the platform of North America. And in that episode, in that early episode, we talked about the platform and the craton continuing from coast to coast. I'm fessing up now because that very simple picture of platform layers overlying metamorphic craton is true for much of North America but it abruptly stops at Las Vegas, Salt Lake City, Edmonton. Can you, can you draw a mental line on your mental map? Edmonton, Salt Lake City, Utah, Las Vegas, Nevada. And if you have that nice line on that map, that line, and you can throw Spokane, Washington in there if you wanted. That line is the west coast of North America for a long time. North America was smaller, and that was the west coast. And what I really am trying to say right now is that east of that line, it's a very simple geologic story for North America. Platform overlying Craton. Not a whole lot of deformation. Great Plains, blah, blah, blah. But to the west of that line, all hell breaks loose. The platform and the craton do not continue to San Francisco. Instead, between Salt Lake City, Utah, and San Francisco, if you drive that on Interstate 80, you are crossing dozens and dozens of exotic terrains. If you drive from Spokane, Washington, to the shores of the Olympic uh, Peninsula coast, you're driving over dozens of exotic terrains. Edmonton to Vancouver, Dozens of exotic terrains. You starting to get it now? Those are the terrains we're talking about today. That's the real estate that developed in the last 200 million years. Because as quote-unquote recently as 200 million years ago, the west coast of North America was at that line that you just drew between Edmonton, Spokane, Salt Lake, and Las Vegas. So we've gathered, we've gained a bunch of real estate in the last 200 million years thanks to the Farallon Plate. And those exotic terrains coming in are related to the uplift of the Rocky Mountains further to the east. But the Rockies are dead. The terrains coming in are dead. In other words, we're not getting any more. And we've gone through a major change to develop the San Andreas Fault and other things we've touched on earlier. I hope this is working for you. I can't promise that it is, but I'm hoping that it's starting to to work with you or work for you. That's a better way to say that. In our next episode, we're going to focus specifically in Washington and try to take those concepts and make them work for us locally here. But I'm going to finish with just a couple of quick personal notes uh, since you made it this far in the episode. Uh, I'm a little rusty with this because uh, it's, the, it's September of 2019, and the last episode that I recorded was back in... Uh, May, I believe, 
So it's been a long break, and I've heard from many of you, like, is the podcast over with? How come? What's going on? And I appreciate your patience. Um, the main message is uh, it's been a weird summer, and I mentioned my dad earlier in this episode. Uh, and this is an intimate format, this, this podcast thing, so I feel comfortable just saying this very quickly. Uh, I have two sisters, and uh, the three of us were taking turns taking care of my dad uh, back in our childhood home in uh, Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin. And uh, um, he was in the last stages of his life, and he wanted to stay at home as long as possible. So uh, for much of the summer, we were taking turns taking care of him. And uh, if you've ever done that, you know how exhausting that can be. Uh, but we, we, we did what we could and tried to make him as comfortable as possible. And he passed away in uh, late July. So uh, a major role model for me and uh, my sisters, um, if you are comfortable with the sound of my voice now, um, I've always heard my whole life, you sound exactly like your dad. So my dad was a teacher and, and a farmer and, and a deep thinker. And uh, so I'm just uh, sharing that with you for uh, a brief moment here. So I'm back at it and uh, back rolling with the podcast and hoping to continue. And just a little secret, uh, we're almost done with these Geology 101 lectures that I've done for a long, long time. And I need to figure out what I'm doing after we finish our little class here. I've got some ideas, but uh, uh, that's the plan. So, dear listener, thank you for checking in. Thank you for your patience for this long uh, hiatus. Uh, we're back at it, and uh, we'll look for you next time. Thank you. <laughs>